Well, morning, welcome. Like Andy said, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, I just want to say welcome, River City. Glad to have you here. If there's any way that we can serve you or, or uh, just help you out, just let us know. We'd love to meet you. Um, I'm excited to continue our series in the book of Proverbs. That's where we're um, heading this whole summer, basically taking a look at the book of Proverbs. And the first three weeks of our series were really an introduction to the book of Proverbs. And we saw how Proverbs defines wisdom, not just about what you know, but wisdom is skill in godly living. Wisdom is skill in godly living. See, wisdom isn't about what you know, it's about who you know. Wisdom begins with knowing God. And so what it means to be wise then is to increasingly reflect the image and the character of God in the way that we live. That's what it means to be wise, to reflect God's image, to reflect his character in the way that we live, to have skill in godliness, to have skill in godly living. And over the course of this summer, as we study Proverbs, we're going to take a look at a bunch of different areas of our lives that God wants us to become wise in, a bunch of different areas that God wants us to reflect his image and his character in. Areas like our parenting or work or how we think and use money, things like our friendships in how we deal with conflict and the way that we use our words and what we say and how we speak and even the way that we deal with our emotions and the various things that happen. See, Proverbs is an incredibly practical book that deals with the real everyday stuff of life. But before we get to any of that stuff, before we get to what it looks like to become wise in any of those areas, we need to take a look at what Proverbs teaches us about the heart. Because what Proverbs teaches us is that at the root of whether or not we become wise or we just remain simple or remain foolish comes down to what's going on in our hearts. We all wrestle with this, with the tension of who we are and who we want to be. And I think oftentimes we struggle with identifying what keeps us from becoming what we want to be. The ancient Greeks, they believed that the struggle was between the mind and the emotions. And if you wanted to be strong, if you wanted to achieve uh, self-control, if you wanted to have wisdom, if you wanted to be successful, then what you needed to do is learn how to submit your emotions to reason. Just mind over matter, right? In the modern world, the problem's almost, almost the flip. See, people often believe nowadays that our deepest passions and emotions are the real you, and you should just seek to embrace them fully and never let yourself or society or anyone else deny you any of those passions or, or suppress them in any kind of a way. That's the only way to self-actualization and to true freedom, right? But as one pastor, I think, just really helpfully reminds us, the Bible teaches neither of those things. The Bible says that the struggle happens within a single entity, within the heart. The main struggle is not between the heart and something else, but between the forces that tear our heart in different directions. That's why Proverbs 4.23, it warns us this way. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. As we study God's word this morning, what I want us to see is that if we want to become wise, if we want to reflect God's image and his character in our lives, then we're going to need to pay close attention to what's going on in our heart. We're going to need to pay close attention to what's going on in our hearts. We've got to learn how to identify and to defend our hearts against the desires that will pull us away from wisdom. And so with that in mind, let's pray as we dive into our study of Proverbs this morning. Jesus, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful for our time together this morning. And God, I just come, I just confess, I'm tired. <laughs> like physically and just, I just feel tired. 
God, I just, I just, I need you uh, to empower me so that whatever I say this morning would come from you, that it'd be fruitful and effective and powerful and good for us. God, I don't have anything to bring of my own, but God, you're the, I want you to speak through me. And so God, I just come dependent on you. And God, we all come dependent on you because we don't have ears to listen without you opening them for us. And we don't have hearts that are soft without you softening them for us. And so Jesus, we just ask humbly, would you just be graciously at work in us through your word this morning? And we just say, we need you. We want you. God, we need you to move and work in us. And so we ask that you would for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Proverbs and the heart, right? With the wisdom of Proverbs is chiefly concerned with the heart. When you and I think about the heart, usually we associate it with just like our emotions or our feelings, right? You love somebody with all your heart, you get your heart broken. When you think about somebody who's passionate, right, that's like a heart kind of thing, right? But the Bible refers to the heart much more holistically than just the place where our emotions happen. The Bible talks about the heart as the place where our thinking and our planning and our decision-making, all of it happens. So at the root of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about a heart, it's talking about who we are, what makes us who we are. That's heart stuff. Tim Keller, I think, just really helpfully writes it this way. He says, in the Bible, the heart is used as a metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientation And the direction of our heart then controls everything, our thinking, our feeling, our decisions, and our actions. Whatever we cherish in our hearts most controls the whole person. In the end, we always do what our heart wants most. That's exactly what Proverbs 4.23 is telling us. But when it says, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it, That's what Proverbs 4.23 is saying. Whatever we desire the most, whatever we love the most, whatever we long for the most, that's the thing that controls us. You see, our desires of the heart, they determine what we do. And what we do, it reveals the desires of our heart. Proverbs 27.19 adds this. It says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. My My wife loves watching Survivor. I know a bunch of you guys love watching Survivor as well. And over the course of the game, people do and say things that, that seem, they're like, I would never, that's not the real me, right? That's, that's not who I really am. I was an obnoxious two-faced liar, but that's not who I really am, right? That's just, that was just the game. And one of the things, they always say that in the after interviews or in the, in the last episode, right? But the truth is that what comes out of us in the times of pressure and stress is not the false you. It's the real you. It's the real you that is driven by winning a million dollars. It's the real you that when that's the thing that drives everything you're doing, it's the, that's the you that comes out. You see, the thing our heart loves the most, the thing our heart wants the most, it changes what we do. You see, the wisdom of God is so concerned with the heart because the desires of the heart determine what we do. They determine how we live, and they either lead us towards righteous wisdom or they lead us towards wicked folly. If we want to be wise, then we've got to pay close attention to our hearts. Proverbs 23, verse 19, the the father writing to his son here, he says, Listen, my son, and be wise. Set your heart on the right path. We've got to pay close attention to our hearts. See, the truth is that there will always be someone or something that drives everything that we do. There will always be someone or something that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in our hearts. There will always be someone or something that we worship. 
And it'll either be a desire for God and for his people and for his kingdom, or it'll be a desire for something else. And a consuming desire for anything other than God is the definition of what idolatry means. When we long for something, when we want something more than we want God. And it's against these idolatrous desires that Proverbs 4.23 calls us to guard our hearts. It says, above all else, guard your hearts. It's like big deal. It's like if they had bold back in the day, that would have been bold and underlined, right? To guard something, it implies a defensive posture. And just like the first step in defending towards any disease is identifying what the disease is and how it works, the first step in defending against the disease of idolatry in our hearts is, to, is learning to identify what we're worshiping. Learning to identify what is at the root of our actions and our attitudes and behaviors. You see, when doctors try to diagnose a disease, what do they do? They start with the symptoms. The symptoms aren't the real problem, but they are a reflection of the disease. Remember, Proverbs 27, 19 told us, your life, it reflects what's going on in your heart. Our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, they're not the real problems. Instead, they are the symptoms that reveal what's going on in our hearts. They reveal what we really desire. They reveal what we are worshiping. Over the course of the last few months on Sunday and in small groups, we've talked about uh, this idea of source idols. We've shown you this fancy chart that's on the screen here. And the part of that chart on the right, right, the questions about what's your greatest nightmare? What is your problem emotion? How do you... Um, uh, how do people often feel around you? Those questions on that chart, they are about the symptoms. They're questions that are asking about the symptoms that are coming from what we're worshiping. It's like the doctor coming to you and saying, where does it hurt? What happens if I do X, Y, or Z? That's what those questions are about. They're about identifying some of the symptoms that we see in our lives. And the answers to those questions, they help us diagnose the real problem. They reveal our source idols. They reveal our heart-level desires that are at the root of the symptoms that our life is exhibiting. And I'll just be the first to say, this chart is not perfect, or it's not like totally all-encompassing. And when you look at it, you're like, I don't totally, I feel like there's more there. Yes, it's just a chart, Right. It's like you need a lot more boxes to really fully nuance it, right, and to make it really the most helpful, okay? It's just a place to start, okay? But the question is, is that what is happening in our lives, the, the behaviors, the attitudes, the actions, what people experience and see around us, that's the symptoms that reveal what we're worshiping. For me, oftentimes what happens is, for me, one of the source idols I really wrestle with, especially at home, is the source idol of comfort. And kids... They just totally destroy that. They really mess with it because kids don't really care what you want to worship, right? Kids just want you to care most about them, right? And about what's going on in their lives and about everything like that. And, and as a parent, what happens so often is I get tempted towards escapism. I get tempted toward, to, to, to try to leave that situation, to try to just be like, I, just, I want to go do something else. I want to be somewhere else. I want to do anything else that, that doesn't take this, like, I just want out of this sometimes. This is a desire that, that tempts me. And so what happens is, I, is as I'm aware of that increasingly, God just keeps giving me wisdom to see those attitudes creeping up. And instead of just like heading down that road for a while, God's increasingly giving me wisdom to see like, oh yeah. That's not, that's not worth worshiping. That's not worth choosing. That's not worth following. 
You see, by learning to diagnose the source idols of our hearts that we're prone to and how, to, how they get worked out in our lives, we can begin to mount a defense against them. But before we get to what our defense looks like, I just want to just make one last note about source idols. Source idols are not like the Myers-Briggs test where you, you kind of take the test and you find out what you're on and you're like, cool, this explains who I am. Moving on, right? No, the, it's meant to be a lens through which you ongoingly evaluate the desires of your heart and how your actions reveal what's going on internally. If you just find out which source idols you're prone to and never take, any, take it any farther than that, you are missing the entire point of the whole source idols anything. You're missing the whole point of it. Because it's not just a diagnostic thing. It's meant you diagnose something in order to fix it. You diagnose something in order to be aware of it, in order so you can make steps to change it. It's like if you got skin cancer and you learned what that looked like, but then the next time you saw something like that on your skin, you just ignored it. You realize that's craziness, right? Last time it was skin cancer, you have something that looks similar to it, and you just ignore it. That's craziness. That's the definition of craziness. No, you go to the doctor right away because you know what the problem is. You don't let it get to as bad as it got before because you know that there's an issue and you know what to look for now. That brings us to our first line of defense as we think about what it means to guard our hearts. You see, the first way that we defend against the disease of idolatry on our hearts is repentance. The first way that we guard our hearts is repentance. Repentance is about acknowledging our sin. Proverbs 30 verse 12, it says this, those who are pure in their own eyes are not yet cleansed of their filth. Proverbs 20 verse 9 adds this, it says, who can say I've kept my heart pure and I'm clean and without sin? They're rhetorical. They're rhetorical proverbs. And what it's saying is nobody can. No one is pure. No one is totally good. And repentance is about surrender. It's about acknowledging our sin. It's about waving the white flag. And you might be thinking, that doesn't sound like a good defense. Waving the white flag, surrendering, that doesn't sound like a good defense. Well, hear me out, because repentance begins with a dependence on God. It's about waving the white flag and saying, I'm defeated by sin. I'm defeated by sin without you, God. And I need your help. And I realize I've been pursuing something else. I've been looking other places. What I need is you to rescue me, God. 1 John 1.9 says this way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, refusing to acknowledge our sin or, or even the seriousness of it, a lot of times we just try to minimize it and so we don't deal with it. Or we just wallow in shame or condemnation. They keep us stuck in the cycle of idolatry. They keep us stuck in worshiping the thing that, that, we, that, that we're condemned by. But when we confess our sins, it frees us to start actually dealing with the problem. A lot of times, uh, one of my favorite, one of this, this TV show I really love, Parks and Rec, right? Uh, just, to, you know, so one of, the, one of the scenarios in the story is that the, there is, uh, there's a lady, her name is Leslie Nope, and she's running for office. And like in every, in every time you're running for office, there's always, this, there's always some kind of scandal, Right? And when people know about the scandal and when it's kind of like behind the scenes, it's like this huge burden on you. But what she does in this, like as part of the episode, but she tries to hide it for forever. And then eventually she's just like, okay, this is true. And she just tells everybody about it. You see, when you try to hide something, it just gets worse and worse and worse. But when you acknowledge it, it takes the wind out of those, accusa- out of those accusations. It takes the power out of those accusations. It's not that it doesn't hurt. It's not that there aren't any consequences. It's not that it just makes everything just easy. 
but it removes the power of sin over you. It removes the power when we repent. You see, when we bring sin to the light, it removes its power. That's why repentance is our first line of defense. Because without repentance, we're stuck under the power of sin. See, repentance is about acknowledging that the desires that we have been controlling us are sin. It's about acknowledging that what we thought would really satisfy didn't and never could. You see, idols always promise what they never can deliver. Before we move on, I just want to highlight two lies that I think we might need to repent of believing as well. One of them, I think, is just the the lie of liberalism, and not just politics liberalism. That's not what I'm talking about. More so, it's this. It's the belief that finding finding ourselves and being ourselves is the highest value and goal, that self-expression and self-actualization and self-realization is the thing of most value, is the thing that cannot be hindered, the thing that cannot be pressed against. Proverbs 19, verse 2, it says it this way. It says, desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? One pastor, I think, just really helpfully, just insightfully pointed this out. He said, our contemporary culture has no way to sift emotions, to discover which of them are liberating because they lead us away from the misery of self-absorption and which are enslaving. The world around us, it, it just says, just be who you want to be. Don't let anyone stop you from pursuing your desires or your passions. Don't let anyone get in the way of that. And God's word says, no. That's not what leads to life. Your deepest desires aren't aren't always what is good for you. Just doing what you think will make you happy is not wisdom. It's foolishness, and it almost always ends in disaster. But the other lie I think that we often need to repent of is the lie of religion, lie of religiosity. The lie of religiosity is that that the way to change, the way to become who we want to be, is to just to try harder and to do better. That it's just on you. And if you just would work harder, if you just would be better, if you just would obey more, then that's what you could do. And it would just be on you to do it. See, trying harder to change your heart, the problem is it doesn't work. You can't want it enough. It's like trying to change your favorite color. My favorite color is green. I can't change that. You can't put enough other colors on. And it's just what it is. Like, I'm trying to paint every room in our house green, because, like, that's the one I like. It's not a good idea to do that, but, like, that's my favorite color. I can't change that. Similarly, river rocks, they don't become smooth by working hard. They become smooth by simply staying in the river. That's what repentance is about. Repentance is about realizing the desires, heart, that the desires of our heart, they're taking us out of the river of God's wisdom. And it's about choosing to get back in the river of God's wisdom so that him and his wisdom can change us. He's the one who changes us. It's about staying with him and being consumed and controlled by him. And so our first line of defense is about repentance. It's a diagnostics, but diagnostics aren't enough. Knowing the problem isn't enough, and repentance on its own isn't enough to fix the problem as well because something else will just take the place of those desires in our heart. Rather, diagnosing the idols of our heart and repenting, it frees us to actually start fighting back, to actually start treating the real problem. You see, when it comes to guarding the heart, the best defense is a good offense. Doctors use vaccines 
We don't want to wait for people to get sick. We want to prevent people from getting sick altogether. In football, in basketball, a good offense forces the other team to do things that they don't want to do, like give up on the run game and only pass, or just take a ton of high-percentage three-point shots, or high-value three-point shots that are really low percentage. And you force, when you have a good offense, it forces the defense, it makes the defending much, much easier. The same is true when we think about guarding our hearts. We need a good offense. We can't just try to keep idols of, can't just try to keep out idols of our heart. We need to captivate our hearts with a superior love, a superior desire, so that we won't be tempted by those other things. What we need is a new overwhelming desire, one that really satisfies. Proverbs 13, verse 12, it says it this way, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. What Proverbs is talking about here is what happens when we worship idols. When what we worship, when what we put our hope in, inevitably fails us, inevitably lets us down, it makes our hearts sick. You've all felt this before. When I've spent the day worshiping comfort, I don't feel satisfied. I don't feel joyful at the end of the day. It's that nagging feeling in your heart that you feel at the end when you worship something that's not worth worshiping. And it's just that nagging sense in your heart that, like, that was a waste. It didn't satisfy. It didn't give the life I was looking for. It didn't fulfill what I wanted it to fulfill. You see, idols never satisfy. They may for a a short period of time, but they always leave us wanting. They always leave us longing for more. Proverbs 27.20 says it this way, Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. We just keep looking and keep wanting more. We're never satisfied. When we put our hope in something else, our hope will always be deferred. C.S. Lewis just, man, that guy is brilliant. He writes it this way. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that, they, know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage and no travel and no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at at the first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what that means. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and the scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be an excellent job, but something happened has evaded us. You see, there is only one kind of longing that actually fulfills. There's only one kind of longing that actually satisfies. There's only one kind of longing that gives us the unfailing love that we're really looking for. There is only one kind of longing that leads us to the tree of life, and it's Jesus. A desire for anything else will never satisfy, but a desire for him will always lead to life. You see, the language there in Proverbs 13, 12 about the tree of life, that's, that's big deal kind of stuff. That, that language about the tree of life, it's used in three places in the Bible. It's used in Genesis, it's used in Revelation, and one more time it's used in Proverbs. The tree of life, it symbolizes eternal life, but more than that, it symbolizes complete life, full life, 
life to the full, life as it was intended by God to be. One commentator writes it this way. He says, the Bible begins and ends with paradise in the midst of which is a tree of life. And the way to the tree of life, which was closed in Genesis 3, is opened again for God's believing people in Revelations. It's made possible by the person and work of Jesus. You see, Jesus turned the cross of death into the tree of life for us. Jesus took the tree of death so that you and I would have the tree of life. And so to the degree that we set our hearts on that truth, and the degree that we enjoy it, and to the degree that we treasure it, it'll be to the, to the degree that we find life. And so how do we make Jesus our overwhelming desire? How do we make him our consuming passion, the thing that we long for most and enjoy the most? Proverbs helps us there as well. Proverbs 4.23, remember it says, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 4.25, just two verses later it says this, let your eyes look straight ahead and fix your gaze directly before you. See, what we look at, what we set our eyes on, what we let ourselves be consumed by is what? changes us. Worshiping Jesus is what changes us to become who we want to be. It's what makes us wise. And so knowing him and being known by him is the thing that truly satisfies. Tim Keller again just so helpfully writes, he says, you cannot change merely by changing your thinking or through great acts of will, but rather by changing what you love most. Change happens not only by giving your, new, your mind new truths, though it does involve that, but also by feeding the imagination new beauties so that you love Jesus supremely. We can change when we change what we worship the most. And so how do we do that? By seeing Jesus' own heart crushed and broken as he died for, on the cross for us. It's as we worship him that our hearts are transformed. And so the question is then, how do we worship Jesus? How do we set our eyes on him? How do we gaze at him so that our hearts might be changed? Well, I think the first thing that we do is, so the first way that we do that is we see him in his word. Proverbs 22, 17 and 18 says, pay attention, turn your ear to the sayings of the wise, apply your heart to what I teach, for it's pleasing when you keep them on your heart and to have them ready on your lips. It's when we study God's word, when we see him, when we apply our hearts to his word that we see Jesus. God's word reveals Jesus to us, and as we see who he is and what he's done, we, be, we come to worship him more and more. But it's not just in emergencies that we should be doing now or when we're desperate. See, being in God's word, spending time in God's word, seeing Jesus in God's word, it should be a habit of our hearts. Last night, uh, there was a big storm. I saw the huge red on the radar and uh, last time that happens, my gutters were clogged. They were real clogged. And so what happened is none of the rain went down the gutters. It just overflowed out of the gutters and just messed up everything, right? And so this time I thought, no, no, no. I will clean the gutters, right? And so I got up on the roof five minutes before it's storming. And Hannah's like holding the ladder like, quickly, it's coming, right? You can like see the lightning off in the corner. And so I'm scurrying around on the roof trying to like pull out gunk out of the gutters, right? And I got most of the stuff out and we didn't really have any problems. It seemed like the water kind of just went down the gutters fine, but it was close. And I didn't really get to do a very good job. I'm sure there's still a ton of gunk and I'm sure there was water that still overflowed out of those gutters. See, what I need to do is I needed to get in the habit of cleaning them out regularly so that when the storm comes, I'll always be ready. 
instead of just trying to do it in an emergency. I had enough time this time. Most of the time, I don't. That's the same way that we need to treat God's word. I had been thinking that I needed to clean out my gutters for weeks. I waited until there was an emergency to do it. You see, that's not always going to work. What happens is that we need to be people who have a habit, who are ready by spending time in God's word and who know the Lord. And so when those desires that tempt us to, to draw us away from the wisdom of God, when they come, we'll be ready for them, not just like scrambling for help. We need to be people that develop a habit of being in God's word regularly and spending time with him. That happens on Sundays. We are super committed to studying God's word here. It happens in small groups. We're committed to doing it there. But it needs to happen on your own time. In fact, that's probably the most important place you spend time in God's word is on your own, reading, talking with the Lord, being with him. Another habit that helps us set our eyes on Jesus, I think, is just being in Christian community. That's why small groups are so important here. It's in community that we get to experience Jesus through others, but it's also in community that believe, uh, the community of believers that God often uses to show us areas of sin in our lives and to help us actually grow in it. Proverbs 20, verse 5, it says this, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but the one who has insight draws them out. I am so thankful for the ways that God has used his wisdom in others to draw out the deep waters of my heart. I think especially of Aaron. God's used uh, him so greatly, more than he probably knows in my own heart, and I'm so grateful to get to pastor this church with you. Without Aaron and Aaron's influence in my own life, his wisdom to draw out the deep waters of my own heart, I would just be a giant mess. You guys, it would be rough. And this church would be a disaster. It would be a mess. So I'm so thankful for the ways that in community of believers, God has drawn out the, the waters of my heart. I think the, one of the last ways, this is not an exhaustive list, but one, I think one of, the, one of the last ways that we set our eyes on Jesus is that as we join him on the mission of making disciples. You see, telling others about Jesus and helping others grow to love Jesus more, it makes you worship Jesus more. As you tell others about him, you remember how amazing he is and how good he is and how much you love him. I love telling people about my wife and about my kids, and when I do, it just makes me all the more thankful for them. It makes me enjoy them all the more. It makes me so just like so grateful to have them in my lives. Likewise, I have always found the seasons of my life when I have the most opportunities to share my faith with non-Christians especially are the times I find myself growing most in my love for Jesus. See, what happens is when we tell others about him, like, you're telling yourself about him when you tell others. And what happens when you do that is, like, you just come to love him more and more and more because you see how good he is and you're reminded again of all that he's done. That's why I love preaching. That's why I love telling you about how amazing Jesus is and how much he satisfies the longings of our hearts and about how he really is the tree of life that we really long for that really does satisfy but we all get to proclaim the gospel to each other. We do that in our lives, but we also do it every week as we take communion. And when we take the drink together, what we're reminding ourselves and each other of is that Jesus' blood, it was shed for us as he paid the penalty that our sin deserved and that separates us from God. And when we take the bread, we're reminded, uh, reminding ourselves and we're reminding each other that Jesus' body, which was broken for us, 
as he in wisdom skillfully lived the life that we did not so that we could be credited with his righteousness, with his perfectly lived wisdom. As we take communion, what we're doing is proclaiming the gospel. What we're doing is preaching to ourselves and to one another. That's why we take communion every week, because we need to remember the gospel all the time. We need to be reminded that what we need is the wisdom of God incarnate. We need to be reminded that Jesus came for us. That he came for us, that he came to make us wise for salvation. And so we sing about him, and we sing to him, and we sing for him, and we live our lives given for his purposes and given for his glory. That's what it means to be wise. And so to know Jesus and to see him as the only thing worthy of our worship and of everything we have to give. Communion, it's in the back when you're ready to go during our time of worship. You just dip the juice in the cup and you celebrate and remember all that Jesus has done as we do that. And as you do, I want to just invite you to remember these words. This uh, commentary, just, it was just so helpful this week. It summed up this way. It says, in sums, Proverbs functions symbolically and provisionally as the tree of life that was lost in Genesis. Proverbs makes it clear that until we reach the tree of life in the paradise of God, we hold fast to the life-giving wisdom of the book of Proverbs, and more importantly, to Jesus' wisdom, who supersedes that of Solomon. So let us set our eyes on Jesus. Let us be consumed and infatuated and, and, and just dwelling on him. Let us hold fast to him for our joy, but more importantly, for God's great and abiding glory in our lives and in every age. Let's pray. Jesus, we just come before you this morning. We are so thankful that you would give us a chance to gather and to worship and to celebrate you. And God, we just, we just come. We need you, God, to be the one that diagnoses, helps us to see and diagnose the idols in our heart that keep us from worshiping you. God, we need you to give us just a humility that enables us to, to repent and to turn from sin and to turn towards you. God, we need you to be the one that just renews and changes our hearts. We need you to be the one that causes Jesus to be beautiful to us, to be the thing that we, is worth giving our lives for, the thing that we long for the most. God, and just like what we say is that we can't do it on our own. We need you to be the one that does it in us. God, we just come dependent on you. We come needing you. We come needing you to be the one that changes us. And God, so we just ask humbly, would you do it? How would you make us wise as we worship you? It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.